Well, happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. I'm really glad you all braved those frigid temperatures outside. Uh, I didn't think it got cold in Georgia, but I did see at 8 a.m. today, there was, you can maybe look it up on my weather app, there was a little snowflake. I even took a picture and sent it to my wife. I thought, maybe it will snow. But you are... Not deterred by the cold weather or the snow, you are here, and I'm glad to be here with you, uh, opening up God's Word. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we have made it all the way up to verse 13 of chapter 4, and at the end of this service, we will be down through verse 18. So we are looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 this morning. Before we read the text, though, let's talk a little bit about context. Paul has spent the first more than half of the book gushing over the Thessalonians. He has sought to give thanks to God for them, to assure them that they are indeed in Christ. Remember, he opens the book saying, you are loved and chosen by God. And I know this because you have received the word and the word is at work in you. In chapter 3, he even says, I'll confess, I was worried about what had happened to you, and so I sent Timothy to you, but he's come back to me with tidings of comfort and joy, and I am so thrilled with what God has done among you. You are walking in the faith. And then in chapter 4, he shifts. He's going to give them specific instructions. And he says, as you are walking in in the faith, I want you to continue to walk, continue to walk And please God, just as you are doing. I want you to do this more and more. And it's that instruction to walk to please God at the beginning of chapter 4 that sort of hangs over the rest of the instructions in the letter. We learn that he wants them to walk to please God by obeying the will of God. And they go, "What, what is God's will for them? What's God's will for us? Paul tells us our holiness our sanctification. And so he turns his attention to various subjects. He talks to us about sexual holiness, about holiness in regards to how we love one another, about holiness in our work. And today we see holiness as it relates to our grief. Paul wants us to grieve as a people who are distinct from the world. It is apt that our subject would be grieving with hope this morning. This is an interesting time of year, is it not? The season brings with it great amounts of joy and celebration, as well as despair. The holidays bring with them a unique sorrow to many, as well as the, the joy they bring to all. It's very easy to, to one moment be delighting in the fellowship of the church or of family, and then very quickly to look across the room and see an empty chair, and to have grief clutch you by the throat. This season on the calendar brings to us both grief and hope. We feel the weight of darkness and death 
and we excitedly wait for the light and life of Christmas Day. The season of our calendar really does teach us to grieve with hope. And that's the main idea of the message this morning, to grieve with hope. That said, let's turn our attention to the text. And would you please stand in honor of reading God's holy and perfect word together this morning? First Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so too through Jesus we believe God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. May he carve its eternal truth on our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you today. If we are to receive your word and to have your word go to work in us, we need your Holy Spirit. We need you to show up and to be present with us. We need your provision for our strength, for our study. We ask that you would help us to understand those things which are spiritually discerned. Give us illumination, Father. Meet us here. Remind us of our hope in Christ. Uh, Remind us that there is nothing wrong with our lives, nothing wrong with us, that a good resurrection will not fix. We are yours because we are one with Christ. We have confidence that as you raised Christ unto eternal life, so too will you raise up all who trust in him. And it is in his holy name that we pray. Amen. may be seated. Despite the attempts of many to obfuscate this particular paragraph of Scripture, Paul's primary objective is clear. You see it in verse 13 and in verse 18. The two verses frame uh, the reason that we should do them. They frame the text and they're really communicating uh, the same idea. Paul wants us to grieve not like the world does, but like Christians. 
Paul wants us to grieve with hope, and he wants us to comfort one another with the words of truth. There are two reasons in between there, verses 14 through 17, that we are to grieve with hope, that we who have trusted in Christ can have hope. Before we get to them, though, I want to look at something in verse 13. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers. It is interesting to me that Paul makes it plain that he does not want this body of believers to be uninformed. Sometimes I meet Christians who pretend as if it is a very spiritual thing to be uninformed about what the Bible teaches, uninformed about doctrines. I even meet uh, some pastors who think that it is a virtue to be uninformed about the text that they are going to teach from on a Sunday morning. They say, I've got to get up there and let go and let God. As if the Holy Spirit only works on the Lord's day and not every day. Brothers and sisters, it is not a good thing to be uninformed. It is not a sign of spiritual maturity to be uneducated about what it is you actually believe. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to be informed. And the reason for his desire that they have this information about Jesus is ultimately their encouragement and their comfort in Christ. The information he is going to give them is about their edification. It's about growing them up in spiritual maturity. And in Thessalonica, the doctrine of the resurrection is what they need to properly deal with death. The doctrine of resurrection is what we need to properly deal with death. Sometimes we take the approach of the world that when people die, we will simply have a wake, reflect on good memories, and distract ourselves from the reality of our mortality. We don't want to address it. We don't want to teach our children about it. Just look over here. We live in a very sanitized culture that tries to forget that death waits for us all. When someone is dying, we send them to a facility and out of our home. We only, we only travel there for, for a few moments. Paul does not want us to approach death this way. He doesn't want us to distract ourselves from death. He doesn't want us to be crippled by grieving in death. He wants us to grieve with hope and to encourage one another, to comfort one another when others are grieving. And so he takes us to that first reason that we can grieve with hope. It's it's here in verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Asleep here is a euphemism for death. And those who have died. And he's saying you can grieve with hope because Jesus died and rose again and is returning. When he returns, he will bring with him those 
who have already departed. He's saying, Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and he's returning. And you know what? He has a plus one in regards to resurrection. His plus one is the church. All those who trust in him will share in a resurrection like his. That's the conditionality we see in the text. We might could translate it. If you believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, then it follows you, who are united to him by faith, will rise from the dead. Paul really is laying out the fundamentals of Christianity. And this phrase that Jesus died in rows, many believe, and you can count me in their number, uh, was an early creed of the church. Sort of just a confession. This is what we believe as Christians. It's very bare bones, right? If you're to be a Christian, you must believe this. You must believe that Jesus died, that he rose, and that he's returning. Jesus died. You go, why did Jesus die? There's, There's more there, right? He died For the forgiveness of the sins of his people. He died so that the sins of all who repent of their rebellion against God and trust in him can have their sins washed away. So that those who trust in him can be made right with God. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. Peter writes, He meaning Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus died so our sins can be forgiven. And Jesus rose from the dead for our justification. Jesus rose from the dead so we can be free from death. Jesus rose from the dead to guarantee the resurrection of the church. He rose from the dead to sit the eternal throne of David. Jesus rose from the dead to rule over the nations. Jesus rose from the dead to sit at the right hand of the Father. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven so that he might one day return to earth and make all things new. Jesus rose from the dead to announce that he really is who he says he is. The God-man come to save his people from the wrath they deserve. Love how Spurgeon put it. The dying Christ purchased eternal life for the church. Purchased resurrection. And the risen Christ we'll see that we get resurrection. The dying Christ purchases eternal life and the risen Christ will see that we get it. Church, your resurrection is as certain as Jesus' own resurrection. That is hope. That's what we hope for. And not just our resurrection, but the return of Christ. When he comes again to rule with complete justice. To reward his righteous ones who have trusted in him by faith. And to execute his holy judgment against those who persist in rebellion against him. He is going to end all evil. 
He is going to make all things new. So in sum, all all packed into verse 14 and into this little creed, we have the fullness of Christian hope. Jesus died so that those who repent and believe can be forgiven. Jesus rose from the dead so that his people can be free from death. Jesus is returning soon on what Paul will show us in the next chapter is same day. This day of the Lord, he's going to return to gather his holy people to himself. To come to earth and establish his kingdom in his fullness. And to execute the wicked. This is the very basic good news of Christianity. But it is not good news to you unless you believe it. Non-Christian, you are in rebellion against God. You are not at peace with God. You are at war with Him. You are rejecting the ways and the will and the word of the God of the universe in favor of your own way. You, non-Christian, are the creature shaking your fist at the creator. You are at war, and God owes you nothing but eternal torment. That is what righteousness demands for you. Yet in his mercy, he sent Christ to die in the place of all who will lay down their rebellious arms and bend the knee to him as king. My non-Christian friend, you can know God as father rather than as judge. You can know Jesus as your brother rather than as your executioner. You can know the God you were made for. You can be adopted into the family of God. If you will turn from doing life your way and submit yourself to Christ the King, you can have life. You were made to worship and enjoy God. It's what you were made for. And the good news is you can fulfill that purpose, worshiping God, enjoying God, if you will come to Christ. He invites all who will come to come. You must lay down your sin. Repent. And trust Jesus. You must look to him and live. This is the only way to peace with God. It is the way that each Christian in this room has traveled. Those who follow Jesus on the narrow way will follow him out of the grave on the day of the Lord. I invite you to join us. Believe in Christ. Come come and talk to someone about it after service. We'd love to tell you more about what it means to follow Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There is no other name by which you can be saved. Those who trust in Christ, even though they die, 
yet shall they live. You can live forever. This is the Christian hope that Jesus died and rose and that those who trust in Jesus will rise like him and be with him. And so Paul's first reason for encouragement is this early church creed, Jesus died and rose. And he takes us to his second reason for encouragement is Christ's own teaching upon which that creed was built. Here we see the teaching of Christ in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. By a word from the Lord means Jesus taught this. This is what Jesus taught explicitly and we're telling it to you. By a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. It seems like there was some consternation over the fate of those who had died in Christ. The concern is probably uh, that they will not participate in the return of Christ in the same way as those who are alive. It could be that they don't expect them to rise from the dead at all. Uh, I'm not sure, it's unclear. But certainly, their participation in this victory march of Jesus is a concern for the Thessalonians. You see it in this word meet in verse 17. We're going to meet the Lord in the air and everybody is going to be there. That's what Paul wants them to know. He's saying, those who are asleep, who are dead, are going to come with Jesus in the air, spiritually. He then is going to raise up their bodies and reunite their bodies and souls, right? We're psychosomatic unities where we're one people. It's not good to be disembodied. We're going to be bodily raised from the dead. Then we who are still living are going to be transformed into resurrection bodies. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. We'll be transformed, given new bodies, and we're all going to meet at Jesus. And when we meet at Jesus, we're then going to follow him on his descent to the earth on this day of the Lord, where he will make all things new and set up his eternal kingdom. Meet, all of that from this word meet in part, verse 17. It is a word that is loaded with fright in the Greek. It conveys the idea of a ticker tape parade, of a celebratory procession, of a victory march. Paul's word choice and imagery are meant to bring to our minds a cultural practice that is sort of foreign to us. You see, in the ancient world, citizens would go out and meet high-ranking officials or kings and then escort them back into the city or back into their homes. So you might think I had company come last week sometime, and when they pulled in my driveway, all of my children, you know, they hadn't even made it to the parking lot yet, and all of my kids are out there trying to, like, standing in the way of their vehicle, right? Eventually, we all get out there, and we walk them into the home. We're honoring them. We're, we're bringing them in. That's, that's the idea of this word meet. It appears two other places in the New Testament, and it functions in the same way. 
In Acts 28, Luke uses the word in his description of how delegates come out of Rome to meet Paul and receive him and escort him back into the city. Perhaps more famously, this word is used in Matthew chapter 25 of the bridesmaids who wait for the bridegroom to come. They're going to join him in the traditional nighttime procession to the marriage feast. You can see this idea of meeting and joining a person for their procession back to or into the city or their home. Maybe the the best picture of this, I think, comes to us with Palm Sunday in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, when he is giving description to Jesus' triumphal procession, he uses a cognate word to this word meet to describe what is happening. I mean, do you remember what happens on Palm Sunday? Come on, you know. Hosanna! Right? And the people would shout back and forth to one another. Sort of like you do at a football stadium, right? One side says, you know, let's go. Or the other side says, team, whatever the team name is. I don't want to insult anybody. But, but that's what they would do. And you know, we're going to try it because I can't resist it, this sort of opportunity on a Sunday morning. So we're going to split the aisle here. Everybody to my right, to this side, I'm going to give you two lines, okay? Your group A. Group A, your first line is Hosanna. This is the practice round. So when I point, you say Hosanna. Hosanna. Like you want to say it. Hosanna. Okay. I'm coming back in a second. Group B, you're over here. When I point to you, same thing, but you have more lines. Uh, you're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ready? Ready? Your, your group B, group B, let's go. Blessed is he who Really great. Going to need some more enthusiasm in a second. Group B, you're there. Then I'm going to point group A again. You will say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's a, that's a mouthful. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. And then I'm going to come over here. It's easy this time. Hosanna in the highest. All right, let's put it all together so we get an idea of what it sounds like when Jesus is coming into the holy city. The people have come out to meet him. He's getting ready to go into Jerusalem and... Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And so these shouts of adulation are falling upon Christ. He's approaching the holy city. And there are palm branches waving everywhere. And these are not innocent palm branches. These are as war banners. The palm branches are a symbol of the Maccabean revolt. When they're waving the palm branches and they are shouting, Hosanna, Lord save, they mean Lord save us from Rome. Lord save us from the enemy. You are coming with a sword to execute your vengeance upon our enemies. Save us. It's time. When they're waving those palm branches. It would be similar to the French singing the French national anthem in occupied France during World War II. It's not innocent. They want Jesus to overthrow the enemy, right? They've gone out to meet him, this word in our text, and they are now following and they're escorting him back into the city. And they want him to bring vengeance. 
You see, they misunderstood. Jesus came the first time to bear God's judgment against his people. And Jesus will come again the second time to bring God's judgment. They were looking for Christ's second advent during his first. They were looking for the sequel while the original was still walking around. Now, here in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is giving us a teaser trailer of the return of Christ, of Palm Sunday part 2. When Jesus comes again, he will have his church at his back. He will come in the sky. And the bodies of sleeping saints will be raised and returned to them. The bodies of living saints will be transformed. And all the ransomed church of God will meet Christ in the sky. And descend to the earth with him as an army. With shouts of Hosanna. And the waving of Christ's terrible banners. The church will come to earth with Christ. Where he will defeat death. Vanquish the enemy once and for all. This is an incredible image. Jesus is coming again with his holy ones to make all things well. You see that at the end of Chapter 3 and verse 13, right? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his holy ones, with all his saints. He's coming. And when he comes, when Jesus comes to conquer his enemies, it will not be in any way secret. It won't be hidden to anyone. Rather, it will be obvious to everyone. He's going to come with a battle cry of command. The voice of an archangel will ring out. The trumpet of the Lord will sound. All these symbols are apocalyptic. They, They signal to us the end of the world. Great day of judgment. We're to see in this imagery the warrior king returning to claim what is rightfully his. He's marching against the enemy with his blood-bought people at his side. He's marching to victory. That's not the best part, though. The best part is here in verse 17. And so... We will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another. That word encourage probably should be translated comfort here. Therefore, comfort, encourage one another with these words. We will always be with the Lord. So you see how this early church creed, Jesus died and rose and is returning together with the teaching of Christ about how he's going to return to earth and claim that which is his. You see how all of this conspires together to encourage the church to put some fire in their bones so that they will not despair as they lay down loved ones in the grave. To inspire them to grieve with hope. 
Remember back in verse 13, Paul, Paul says he does not want us to grieve like the world. He wants us to be distinct from the world. Church, God wants you to grieve like Christians. I think step one is just rejoicing. How, how, do, you, how do you grieve with hope? I think it's rejoicing in the truth of the gospel. Rejoicing in the fact that as Christ is, so too shall you be. Rejoicing in the fact that you've been saved from the wrath of God that you deserve and given the eternal blessing of God that you don't deserve in Christ. I mean, that's, that's Christianity. It's keeping our, our hands around the fundamentals of our faith. The resurrection is why we sing. It's what we look forward to. We may be a sorrowful people sometimes, but we ought to always be rejoicing in our salvation. We are always to worship God and give Him thanks. Even in our grief. Did you know that? Christian grief is offered as worship to God. It's part of what makes Christian grief distinct from the world. In our grief, we are able to to look to death as well as the resurrection to come. We're able to shed tears and give thanks. Friends, good grief is an expression, not of Charlie Brown, Good grief is an expression of gratitude to God. Tears of sorrow over the loss of a good gift of God honor God as the gift giver. Holy mourning is an act of gratitude offered as worship to the Lord who is the giver of all good things. To the God who gives and takes away. Good mourning mourns like Job. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You'll notice Paul doesn't say, do not grieve. Say that again. Paul does not say, do not grieve. He says, do not grieve like the world. Be holy and hopeful in your grief. Brothers and sisters, hopeful grief is good grief. To refuse to grieve over the loss of a loved one is to refuse to be thankful for them. It is an insult to God to refuse to be thankful for a gift of God. I think sometimes Christians will act very pious and they will say things like, ah, that brother or sister who's distant from me, they'll be raised from the dead soon, so no need for tears. And they'll quote the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? The problem is, is Paul says, that's not something we get to sing until Christ returns. Because today, when someone dies, death stings. It hurts. Such folks make themselves more spiritual than Jesus. Who, if you'll remember, wept next to the tomb of Lazarus. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he wept. Loved ones, 
Jesus wept at the loss of his friend, at the cost of sin, which is death. You can weep. You can grieve. It's good. Hopeful grief is good. It's holy grief. It is a good thing for you to acknowledge the loss of life and God's graciousness in giving life. Holy grieving is a painful sacrifice laid upon the altar of the Lord. It announces our hatred of sin and death, our love of God, our longing to be with God, and our request for the Lord Jesus to come soon. Friends, offer your grief to God as worship. Many many of us, and I know many of you, have experienced much death and grief in recent years. And it, it is good for us to grieve. Yet, it is not good for us to grieve without hope or to grieve alone. Temptation for us when we are hurting is to isolate ourselves and to withdraw from community. Temptation is to get bitter at the Lord. Why did you take him from me? Why did you take her from me? Why? Temptation is to be angry and alone. That's, you'll remember a few weeks ago, that's right where Satan wants you. <laughs> Cut off from one of the primary means by which God has promised to give you comfort through other believers. You see, Paul is, Paul is saying here in verse 18, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with resurrection words. Brothers and sisters, we are to comfort one another in affliction, in our grieving, and we are to allow ourselves to be comforted. So when, when you are, are grieving, don't cut yourself off from the church. Press in. Share memories with people. Give thanks to God for those memories. Don't become bitter. As a Christian, you know that the best is yet to come. You can, you can grieve and you ought to grieve the loss of your loved one, but you ought not lose sight of the resurrection to come. One of my favorite, I don't know if it's a hobby or not, we'll call it a hobby. One of my favorite hobbies is occasionally going out to the nicest steakhouse I can find. Usually I just go with a friend of mine because I have too many kids for that to be affordable. They wouldn't, they wouldn't appreciate it anyway, okay? But what I do, I'll go and I'll order some appetizers. You know, you get the sparkling bubbly water. And typically, I'll order an appetizer. An appetizer comes out, told y'all last week uh, in the evening service, one of my favorites are that, those giant tiger claw shrimps. It's like the size of my arm. He's picking up, like, wow. It's delicious. And when, when the appetizer's gone, I do get a little sad. I wish there was more of that. But I also know the entree is coming. The appetizer is just to prepare. It's a good thing to prepare me for the better thing that is on its way. I don't want to say that death is a good thing in this particular analogy. But what I do want to say is this. The good memories we have of loved ones, those gifts that God has given to us and other people, 
They are truly and really good. And from a Christian perspective, they're just whetting our appetites for what's to come when Christ returns. The best memories here on earth are but a pale imitation of what's to come. If you are in Christ and your loved ones are in Christ, you can look forward to an eternity of wonderful life together. So as we comfort one another, I think it's good to reflect on our relationships and to say, I know what it was like to be with you and I loved it and I, and I, and I, miss, I, miss, the, I miss this person. But I can't wait to see him again. My friends that were here last week uh, reminded me of a C.S. Lewis quote, and I'm going to butcher it, but basically he says, there are some things that only certain of our friends can bring out of us, such that when I lose someone from my group of closest friends, I don't only lose that person, but I lose the things that are unique that they could bring out of other people. I said, man, that's good. And so sometimes I'll look at some of my relationships and I'll think, What are some of the things people bring out of me? My friends who were here last week, uh, some of you were very kind to them. They appreciated the warm welcome. But they have a unique ability to bring out the crazy in me. They're just sort of wild and free people, I know. And so, this is not related to the sermon, but an anecdote nonetheless. Last week after church, or I don't know what day it was, I ended up, I chased my kids through the woods with eggs, right? I threw eggs at my children. It was really fun. But that was something only that friend group could bring out of me. What I'm I'm saying to you here is you're, you're going to lose loved ones. We are going to lose one another as we live long enough. But we should hold on to those memories and look forward to the time where all of those things are going to be drawn out of all of us as we stand before the throne of Christ and worship. We want to grieve with hope. We want to to grieve with gratitude. We want to grieve with others in community. We always want to grieve with God's word in our hand. Hope-filled grieving is hard. And it is glorious when you see it. Now, as a church and as a pastor, we are still pretty new to each other. And so we don't know all of each other's stories, but I do, I do want to share part of my wife's story with you. I want to hold her up as an example of grieving with hope. In the last couple of years, she has lost both her mother and her father. Her father was lost for over a week before being found dead. And her mother died after a second bout with breast cancer. Chelsea had every opportunity to get bitter at these circumstances, especially with regard to her mother. Her mother had beaten cancer, and its return was actually discovered by a doctor who dismissed it as nothing significant. And then months later, it turned out to be quite a significant discovery. Because the cancer had remained, ultimately resulted in her mother's death. I think my wife was tempted to be bitter, but I never saw it. She never cut herself off from the church. She openly walked through her suffering together with not just me, but with our people. 
She grieved the loss of her mom with, with much hope. I think many of you probably have had a similar experience when you lose someone to cancer. You don't just lose them once. You lose them hundreds of times over a period of time. As they are less and less themselves, as they slowly deteriorate before you. It's horrific. My wife's grief was long. It continues. It will continue. And it is hopeful. I bring, bring this up because I'm never going to forget her mother's last days. It was October. Leaves were painted with all those brilliant colors of fall. Sherry was in hospice. Now, one thing you have to know about my mother-in-law is that she loved Christmas. I mean, loved it annoyingly so. She had outrageous decorations all over the place. In her hair salon and in her home. I mean, lights everywhere. If you visited her in one of her dwellings, you would instantly be surrounded by literally hundreds of snowmen and forests of Christmas trees. In that fall, uh, we knew that Sherry was not going to make it to another Christmas. And so Chelsea and her sister, in an act of cheerful defiance, brought the hope of Christmas to their mother's deathbed. Never hath a hospice room had so much Christmas cheer. They hung the garland. They put ornaments on the tree. Put presents beneath it. And we did a little Christmas in October. It was a strangely Christian thing to have the hope and joy of lights filling a room that would be used as a grave Quiet reminder that not even death can put out the light of life in Christ. Sherry's last afternoon, Chelsea was there alone with her. Mom could do little more than sleep. And so she began to read to her from the book of Romans in chapter 8. Such a glorious passage of scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For I consider the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Chelsea didn't get to the end of chapter 8. Her mother's breathing became ragged. and She set the book down so that she might take up her mother in her arms. As her mother breathed her last, Chelsea simply said, I love you. It's okay. And sleep took her. Tears, thanks, and hope. If you keep reading in Romans 8, there is that cheerful defiance. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, even death. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ, this this is why we can grieve with hope. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing! Not even death. Not even for a moment. To be absent in flesh is to be present with Christ. For the Christian, death is transformed from greatest enemy into a pretty good anesthesiologist. For the Christian, death is falling asleep one place and waking up in the arms of your father. If you've had kids, you've probably had this experience from the other direction. You know, you go somewhere out on a big outing, take the kids out, and they wear themselves out all day. They're they're exhausted. And then they fall asleep in the car on the way home. You unbuckle them from the seat. You carry them into the house, and you, you try not to hit their head on things. You put them in bed. And when they wake up in the morning, they're right where they're supposed to be. This is what Paul says death is for the Christian. 
You go to sleep here. You wake up in the arms of your father. It's interesting. I don't dread falling asleep, do you? I actually look forward to it. It's one of the best parts of my day sometimes. I'm like, it's bedtime, and then I'm so excited I can't fall asleep. But you know, I'll say to my, my family sometimes, Lord willing, I will see you in the morning. And this is what the Christian says. I'll see you in the morning. If the Lord tarries, I'll meet you in heaven. If not, I'll meet you in the sky when he returns. Death for the Christian is to say, I'm going to bed. I'll see you in the morning. I'm going to death. I'll see you at Christ. Friends, this is how we grieve with hope. Hope pours God's promises into the cup of grief. What has God promised us? Eternal life. Resurrection life together with him and his people. He has promised to return and make all things new. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor, crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. First Baptist, our comfort is Christ. He is risen. You could say he is risen indeed. It's good. We'll try again. I'm a lot of participants. He is risen. risen And we too shall rise. We shall always be with one another and with the Lord. Let's celebrate this truth together this morning as we meet with one another and Christ, not in the air, but around the Lord's table. Invite the elders to come up now. And I am shifting the order of this a little bit because I am a particular person. As they come, once they get up here, we're going to read the covenant together and reaffirm our promises to one another and Christ before we covenant together by actually participating in the supper. So when we come to this table, we are, in a spiritual sense, making ourselves one with another. The many are made one because we all partake of the one bread. 
And we want to make sure that as we are made one, that we eat and drink, recognizing the body of Christ. That is, recognizing not only Christ's body given for us, but our relationship with one another. Indeed, we are the body of Christ. And to eat and drink without recognizing that fact is to eat and drink judgment on ourselves. And so as we prepare to read our covenant and come, uh, you can come down these aisles. You want to move out that side, that's, that's your right, and then come up the left side, and we'll, we'll work through together. If you're unable to come up, you put your hand up, and somebody will bring the elements to you so that you can participate with us. If you're a baptized believer of a gospel-preaching church, we invite you to celebrate this supper together with us. With that said, let's read our covenant together. Having been led by the Spirit of God to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, and having entered into the fellowship of His church, the church prayerfully and joyfully makes this covenant with one another and with Him, in order to love God and worship Him as the church reaches and disciples others for Christ, the church promises with His help to seek knowledge of Jesus Christ to strive to lead other Christians in the fellowship of his church, to offer training in Christian discipleship, to contribute cheerfully through regular support of this church, to emphasize and support local and world missions, to attend faithfully the services of this church and participate actively in its ministries, to uphold the doctrines and ordinances of this church, to support the members of this church in Christian love, to reach out to others through this church's care ministry and global ministry programs. Believing that the Bible is authoritative, infallible, and the Word of God, and recognizing Jesus Christ as the head of the church, the church further proposes to place Christ at the center of our lives, to follow Christ's example in our dealings with others, to commit ourselves to personal and family Bible study and prayer. We further pledge to maintain the spirit wherever we go. Amen.